Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special mailbag edition. Last week was special because Andrew was here. This week, no, I can't even say it. It's still special because Andrew's here, but I'm here as well. I, of course, am Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. He is Andrew Page from strawman.com. Mr. Page, g'day. How are you going? Mate, I'm, well, so a week has passed. And yet, it feels like no time has passed at all because we're recording this mailbag episode straight after the last one in which you and I, at the very end, went, ah, when we looked at our portfolios. So, I am no better than that. Actually, let me let me hit refresh. See, see if the last 15 minutes have saved me anything. Uh, no. Well, just the, market, the market was down 5.2%. Now it's only down 4.9%. So, it's, it's, you know, it's you moving in the right direction. See how much money I made in the last 15 minutes? <laughs> Mate, otherwise, I'm very well. And these, t- look, we laugh about it. And yes, it's still a little bit painful, a little bit scary. But these things will pass. And so we kind of laugh about it because it helps us manage, really. <laughs> it's not our first rodeo, is it, my friend? It is it's not, not our, our first, first rodeo. rodeo. It is not our first rodeo. Uh, luckily, unlike rodeos, investing gets better with age. I'm not sure how I'd go riding a horse, let alone trying to stay on one for eight seconds or a, a bull. So I, um, I will happily take the metaphor and not the actual rodeo. Yes. Yeah, good point. Your bull riding days over as well? Oh, well, <laughs> if they ever began, yeah. <laughs> Only the bull of the stock market. That's something that's really yes, some horrible, that's catchy it, phrase in that that's one. It. Mate, let's move on from bull analogies and radios and, and uh, weeping out of our portfolios and move on to something a lot more interesting, which is a question from someone who says, Hi there, Scott and Ram. Please don't mention my name. As I've said before, if you don't want us to mention your name, don't put it at the bottom. <laughs> By the time I get there, I will have actually given it away. So thank you for saying at the top, don't mention my name. By the way, he also, or she also then says, love the podcast and look forward to it every week. Now, again, I've said before, we don't just choose the question to answer because people say nice things about us, but we're human. We have egos. Andrew gets paid in uh, in ego points. So, um, yeah, it's always nice to say it. Thank you. <laughs> and this person says, thank you both for your time and for this free service. Very grateful. Just a thought. Could you please take opposing views on every point? I'm going to say no up front, but I'll let Andrew respond. He says, or he, she says, it could be a bloke or a girl, I don't know. Musk requiring all staff in office. What benefits could there be for that reasoning? Some you might not be aware of, perhaps. Very possible. Great collaboration and innovation often happen in person. Have you ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Many other examples on both sides of the Mm. argument, of course. So yes, that's fair. We probably should make an effort to highlight both the ups and downsides of things. Um, And you're absolutely true. Um, I I also know for what it's worth, uh, young people will often get more out of being in an office because they haven't been in office environments. The casual interaction with people um, you just have around an office happens. And when you're building your career, learning some stuff, um, learning by osmosis, super, super useful. So yes, there are absolutely benefits. Um, That's why I'm not necessarily saying people should work from home. They are flexible working, giving people a choice of doing either or or both uh, can be useful. But you could be right. Maybe Musk is right for a change. Uh, can I question? add a thought? Oh, Just a quick yes. thought there. Yes, please. Um, it's a good quote I came across recently. And it's mm. from Barry Lieber. And he says, uh, we like to be black or white, tall or short, here or there. We like to consider two sides to every story. Unfortunately, there aren't always two sides. <laughs> Sometimes there's only one. More often, there are multitudes, many facets on the stone, nooks and crannies in abundance. Things are usually not either black or white, but multicolored, which I just loved. And when you were reading out that uh, question there, it just reminded me of that. I think we actually do disagree on a a number (laughs) number of things. (laughs) Oh, funny. Laugh. But but, but I think the big things, just (laughs) as you've been doing this for Mm -hmm. a couple decades or so now, kind of, there are some things that I think that there's, there's yeah. we, we would be we would be taking the opposing view just for the sake of it. Yeah. And this is frankly just 
very yep, totally. quick tangent. It's always like to start off the, the podcast on a tangent, but I think this is where the media goes wrong a lot of the times. They, like a good journalist mm, will say, mm, mm. we need the other side of the story. But yeah. sometimes it's like there are things where it's like, look, virtually everyone agrees on this. We, we are just, <laughs> there is no point to get, because when you get the other side of the story, you're having to go into some cave where some yeah. weirdo lives. And you know, getting the flat earthers like, to comment on, on, the, on the latest picture of the globe is not very helpful. Well, like, yeah, every time we do a story on NASA, exactly, let's get a flat earther on there. It's sort of like, <laughs> mm. and I feel as though, I no? feel as though, I, lo- I really do love the point that the listener yeah, made. No, it, and, and I feel, well, I definitely will try and be devil's advocate where possible. Mm. But if, I think where if we're not, it's because like you know, there's there's no there's no debate to be had on some so, of these things. I'm right, and Andrew agrees. Um, yep. No, it's, it's, a, it's a very good one. Hey, uh, so the, que- the question then following up, the question I have keeps bothering me, and which also might have been answered on prior episodes. If that's the case, my apologies. I've been investing since 2004. Prior to that, I was a speculator and learned my lessons well. I think fair enough. My portfolio as of today is up 10 percent. Uh, time weighted returns since 2004 and over 12% for the last 10 years. So this is obviously annualized, I should be annualized. Uh, 8% for the five years, 6% for the last three years, minus five this financial year. Not bad with a smile. Warren Buffett and Charlie Not Munger are certainly all. my idols as far as investing is concerned. So I, I, I will stop and say the same thing as you just said. Fantastic result. Uh, really, really strong result. That, that's, you know, totally uh, very, very, very good. Uh, question. Does... Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger ever buy a business that do not pay dividends or income? If not, why not? Why would I want to buy a business that does not pay dividends with the hope of getting some in the future or having to sell my goose that lays the golden eggs? Remembering that I want to emulate Warren and Charlie in many ways. So Berkshire Hathaway shares need to be sold to benefit. I would rather Berkshire Hathaway paid a dividend and get a haircut on the growth, which would also give it a longer runway, in my personal opinion. I'm a small business owner and I can't imagine owning a business that reinvests all of its cash flow back in the business forever. My current dividend income is about 50 grand in growing, by the way. Well done. Uh, bank and high yield holdings represent less than 5% of the portfolio. Well done. Thank you for your help. So really, really, really great question, mate. And it, it does come down to that, you know, if, if Arthur's not paying a dividend, why, why does he not want it? Or what does he want one from his businesses? Or, or should you really want a business that invests 100% of its profit into future growth rather than giving at least something to the owners for their trouble on the way through um, mm. particularly topical mate we've talked last week about the uh, the absolute debacle that has been tech shares over the last little while and the mm. price to sales ratio and other things sometimes a little bit of dividend income just kind of helps to uh, helps to grease the wheels doesn't it yeah, it does. Uh, and look, there's no right or wrong here. I mean, so mm. if, if you want dividends, then you should definitely go for things that pay dividends. And it's, yep. it, I'm, I'm totally have no right to say that is that is wrong. None at all. Um, there's a butt coming. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, any choice in, in life and uh, particularly in finance, there's an opportunity yep. cost with that. Yep. And so the other side of the argument would be it's like, well, and Buffett was here, he would say, I'm pretty confident of this. He would say, well, I could pay you a dividend mm-hmm. or I could just keep the money and generate a 20% return on that compound over the next decade or so. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be far, far better off if you leave the money with me. Mm-hmm. So it's a choice. What do you want? Do you want cash? Do you want the bird in the hand now or yeah. the two in the hand later on? And that, that, that is the compromise. Now, again, there's no right or wrong. Some people say, well, actually, I, I want the cash now. And it's like, great. You, you should focus on things that will that will generate a cash stream for you now. Mm-hmm. If you're in a situation where that isn't important to you right now, and it, mm-hmm. it, it's more about what you will have later, 
and you're confident of the reinvestment potential and the compounding ability of the of the person who is stewarding your capital, mm. then absolutely leave it there. <laughs> so you know, but there's there's a cost. There's always a cost. If you leave it there, the cost is you don't have money now. If you take the money now, the cost is you you don't have as much money as you would have down the track. And that's that's just you just got to make your peace with that, which whichever one you prefer. Yeah, that that's a perfect summary. At the end of the day, I think it's different. The reinvestment is really hard. Berkshire's actually a really good example. I own shares again for the records. Everybody knows by now, but I feel obliged to and should disclose that for people who haven't listened or are new to the podcast. Um, the reality is Buffett's compounded at 20% a year over that period of time. So if Buffett was your fund manager and he gave you out some dividends, you could spend those. You could do something with them. And you could, or you could hope to reinvest in yourself and get 20% per annum. Or <laughs> you could say, hey, Warren, you're pretty good at this caper. How about you give me the dividend? I'll give it back to you and you invest it for me. And that's kind of what's happening, right? They are reinvested dividends, particularly in Buffett's case where he's buying. And again, this is why it's a good, good example. There are businesses that do it, by the way, and I don't want to ignore those. But uh, in Buffett's case, he's literally taking the money that, that's freed up and buying more stuff with it. Just as you and I do, when we get those dividends, unless we're living on them, which is absolutely fine, if we're in the accumulation phase, we're reinvesting those dividends anyway, Buffett's just doing it internally. He's taking the cash that would be paid out going, well, I'll give it to you and you, you can take it. Or I could invest it for you. And thus far, it's been a spectacularly good idea to do that. Um, so that's one. The other one, of course, is just if you're looking at a growth business that has potential opportunity, imagine any any spectacularly great business when it first started. Imagine Woolworths, right? Starts with one discount department. I'll use that just as an easy example. Starts with one discount department store, kind of like a big WE kind of thing. Apparently, I think it was, was it under Town Hall, I think I want to say, in Sydney, went back in the day. It starts up and then it, and it you know, has, decides mm. it's got a good business model, so it buys a second store, opens a second store, and puts the money into that cash growing the inventory in that store. If Woolworths had grown half as quickly, would it still be great? Maybe, possibly. Would it have been overtaken by Coles long ago and bought out or shut down or whatever? Maybe, possibly. Um, don't know the answer. But any any growth story, if you're looking to grow a business, this is, I think, your difference. You, you asked the question about you're, you're a small business owner, which is awesome, thank you. And you can't imagine running a business that doesn't pay you something. Completely get it. Uh, so you're running your business largely for cash with some growth, obviously. Uh, you could probably have grown your business more quickly had you not taken any money out at all and simply put the money back into buying more machines or increasing your space. I don't know what your business is and I don't want to know. Um, but you know, whatever it is that you do with your, with your business, you could probably have grown it quicker had you reinvested all that money. And you could have a bigger business now and it might be worth more for you instead of you uh, own a business worth, I'm going to make some numbers up, worth a million dollars, you might have a business worth $3 million today. And you would have had to forego all that profit, but you'd have that money available to then sell the business or at some point say, I'm, I've finished investing, reinvesting now, I'm now in cash flow mode and I'm going to earn cash flow from that bigger business rather than the smaller one that it is now because I took some cash along the way. Neither is wrong, neither is right, as Ram absolutely says, um, but it's absolutely that story of simply just, hey, different ways of doing it, different ways of creating value. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the way this, you know, the the, the choice is, is absolutely yours, both on a business level and on a shareholder level, but they're kind of the same thing. I think what I like about your thought is you're thinking about it exactly as a business, which is which is spectacular. Any more for that, yeah, Ram? I- no, I'll, 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 a personal story, like with with Strawman, we've very yeah. much taken the decision to to keep it as a small business, only because sort of, right. <laughs> but but partly because the, the I've seen so many other, um, you know, you kind of oh, it's tech, it's growth, it's VC funded, <laughs> you know, we could grow this, and you know, forty five percent of Australians yeah, own yeah, shares, yeah. and if you could do this, and you, you're going, you know, even if you're successful, yeah. it's ten years of bleeding cash while you ramp up and build out the team, and it's like oh. Well, let's just focus on the people who get it and yep, yep. we just do our thing and our costs are virtually nothing and we just, you know, we're never going to be big. <laughs> I'm like really made my peace with that. <laughs> but, but you know, again, it's, it's and again, it's, I'm not saying that's the right choice, but it's the right yeah, choice for me. For yep. And, it, and it, 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 again, you just, opportunity cost is one of those big, 
big concepts in investing. And I feel as though you need to, people really need to understand that and be comfortable with, with what they're foregoing. Mm. If there was more growth potential for Strawman, would you have maybe foregone a bit of money and said, hey, look, let's keep it in the business and run a bit longer? Uh, well, so here, well, these, are, these are really interesting questions and I've obviously thought through deep. So, yeah, so <laughs> on, on, one, on one hand, you can kind of go, well, yeah, if, if I felt very high conviction, mm. the potential was there. Right, right. And then, but then, but even then, it's kind of like, well, there's opportunity cost there, right? I don't have I don't have enough cash to ramp mm, it up mm, and mm. support a team of fifty people. Yeah. So that means I'm inviting outside capital in. Yeah. Right, which means right, I'm right. diluting. Yeah. Which means that I. It, I and you take I a risk came, that won't work. Yeah. I can't. Well, I, look, I came to the epiphany that at a point it just becomes about ego. Yeah. And and so I can go, hey, I'm the founder and managing director of this business <laughs> that turns over three. You know, it feels like oh, great. It's, you know, you yeah, feel like right. you're something special. It's like I yeah, am the straw I, man. But I don't own most of it right anymore. And yeah, this, this happens yeah. all of the time. Yeah. And in, in fact, so it's a much bigger business, but now I'm responsible for a whole bunch of other people. We've <laughs> yeah, had to take right. a huge amount of risk on the way through. Right, There's right. people calling you up every day saying, what's happening with our money? What's happening with our money? Yeah, we need you to yeah, do this. You know, yeah. It's just like, whoa, that is, that is not for me. I would rather be answerable to me yeah. and no one else and just focus on the members and, and just, you know, we, we don't do much marketing at all, really. We don't, we just, it's just, it, again, I'm not saying it's the right decision, but I feel as though that there, I, I've seen, a, particularly now with, with markets are turning, you see a lot of these sort of startups that had all the potential in the world, raise money at high price and they probably won't survive. <laughs> they won't. Because they just right. can't shed the That's costs right. fast yep. enough. Yep. You know, and, and, and they'll, so they, they might've had, so you, you could then say, well, is it better to own 20% of a business that's 10 times bigger or 100% of a business that's 10 times smaller? You can sort of right. make that analysis. Right. But I would rather have a business that's in, that can endure and survive regardless of the size. <laughs> so it's kind of, there's also that, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot of different considerations no, huge, here. Yep. No, but but, I, but I, 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 the, my, my point is I feel with a lot of, a lot of people in that space do it more for ego than for any sound, <laughs> rational capital allocation decisions. Yeah. It's, a, it's one of the great uh, ironies of, of, of business life, right? If you're going to be Steve Jobs or you're going to be Elon Musk, you have to have an arrogance that is far, far beyond reality because that's the only way you end up making yep. things like this. And, and for every Musk, there is 100 would-be Musks who don't make it because they just completely got it wrong. Yep. And Musk got lucky or was smart enough or the right place at the right time or whatever he did, worked harder or whatever. Um, it, it's got, you, have to, you have to be able to, to literally put reality aside and say, sure, it probably won't work but if, mathematically, but I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, there, there's some, yep. there is some element of, and you actually, you appeared on a, a, a podcast of The Good Oil, an episode of The Good Oil uh, a little while ago. If you haven't listened to that, dear listener, please check that out. It's our other podcast that we do, or I do anyway, but Andrew was a guest in this particular instance. And we talked about exactly that, about that idea of being able to suspend disbelief mm. for long enough to go and chase the dream. Uh, that's what entrepreneurs need to be able to do. At the same time, as you say, mate, you then come to a point where like, okay, done that. And now I can clear eye look at the future and say, from here, what's most likely? Where's, where's the best outcome for me? And you've, you, found a, you found a great place. I think that's to your credit that you've actually been able to do that because many people, frankly, drive these things into the ground because they don't know when to stop, but they take risk after risk after risk. And eventually you, you toss the coin or spin the roulette wheel enough times, um, you come up on a, on a loss. And if you do that, you end up blowing yeah. the thing up. I think the other thing too, I mean, again, it's, it's depending on your personal yep. uh, priorities. Yep, yep. And the other thing where you look at a lot of successful entrepreneurs mm. that have undoubtedly objectively been highly successful, but they don't know their kids and they get divorced. You know, they, their marriage falls mm. apart. Mm. Or, you know, so I, for me, it's kind of like, you know, 
I didn't want to sacrifice that guy. It's not like, it's, again, it's just really, really important to me. So I just, I don't, you say, oh, what if, what if it could have been a hundred times bigger? And it's like, well, let's say that that could have been the case, but then I'm just constantly yeah. working. I never get to hang out with my kids or, yeah. you know, yeah. spend time with my family. It's like, oh, it's, it's too big a sacrifice mm. for me. Mm. Um, and again, not necessarily that means it's the right or wrong decision, but you, you've all, there's, as I get older, the more I realize there are there are a lot of non-financial considerations in mm. in a lot of the the the, the things the decisions that you, which are ostensibly about financial decisions. There's a lot of non-financial considerations, which we've talked about before with renting versus buying and all yeah, the other yeah, stuff as well. Yeah. So, it's the, the, the thing. A lot of the most important things don't fit in a spreadsheet. Is what I've I've learned. Nice, mate. Good, uh, a good observation. Here's a, here's a question from Matthew that I'm going to ask. It's a little bit hard because he's asking about a photo, which Matthew, you, you know, it's not a, a particularly good podcast medium, but I'll share it anyway because I think if you if you've um, if you've if you ever checked out the market and looked at an article about a market on a bad day, you'll 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 be familiar with Matthew's question. Hi, Scott and Ram. I've been an avid listener over the past twelve months. I just love listening to your pods while working in the garden or driving the kids around. This is not a complex question, nor is it suited to a podcast as it centers on a picture. But here it is anyway, and I'm sure I'm not the only one with this question. Now, it, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question anyway, and, and it will make sense as, as I go on. Do you know who this guy is? He always seems to be the centerpiece of the photo accompanying an article about the stock market. <laughs> if I remember correctly, yes, you're already laughing. You know exactly who he is, right? Yeah. Exactly. And if I remember correctly, it always seems to be an article about a catastrophic drop in the market, never a significant uplift. Who is he? And what has he done to deserve this characterization? Hoping you can help, full on gentleman Matthew. And now, Ram and Matthew, I did, I did a little bit of Googling. I, I don't do a lot of research, but I did ask Sarah, who sent this through from our member service team. I said, mate, was there a photo? She said, oh, yeah, it was, but I couldn't attach it. Said, All right. So I looked around and I, 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 I think I searched stock market guy or something and eventually found a photo. And I'm not going to do, a, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one because it is, a, it is a, a visual one. But you'll know that, you'll know that, and to, to help you think about who this guy is, um, there's a QA with a guy. His name's Peter, I assume it's Tushman or Tuckman, T U C H M A N, probably Tushman. Um, there's an interview with him in, in the Washington Post. And the first question to him starts, question, why are you the most photographed person on the stock exchange? And here's his answer. If you look at my pictures, I have that Einstein-y look. Now, if you, if you remember, he's, got, he's got glasses on. He's got the glasses kind of keeper, that little cord that goes behind your head. He's got a white beard and, and white hair kind of around the back and kind of bald on top. Bit of a, you know, a bald Einstein kind of, bald on top Einstein kind of thing going on. He says, if you look at my pictures, I have that einstein look. I have the sort of wild look that could disseminate an up 400 day or a down 400 day. <laughs> my face describes emotion, excitement or distraught madness. And it's 100% genuine. The stress and excitement of a volatile day on Wall Street is pure honest emotion yeah. so yes if you, you you'll probably almost certainly know this guy he's on everything um it's it's, well, it's very- every every media outlet has their stuff totally their stock footage sort of uh, yeah, exactly. archive uh, and someone yeah. writes a story oh we need a picture to attach to it someone searches up stock market <laughs> bear market something and this guy shows oh that's a great yeah. picture let's use that yeah <laughs> it's very funny now can i can i uh, what what i love about this so for all of for all of that right for all this guy part of the reason answer is matthew asked the question but you you will mate you will lose your stuff over this this answer one of the one of the last questions do you own stock answer I have never owned a share of stock in my life. I do not eat my own cooking. Funny thing about money, if I started to worry about my own profit loss, I'd be less concentrated on my customers' well-being. Also, I have two children in college, so I don't have any money to buy stocks. Oh, my God. Make, make of that what you will. 
But I thought it was yep. just a, I thought that was just a funny a funny article. Good, good question, Matthew. Hopefully, most of our listeners are familiar. If you have a if you have a big Dan day in the market, um, I'm sure you can find a photo of this guy. Or next time you see it, you'll know exactly. You're like, oh, you've seen that everywhere. So yes, guy with a white beard on the floor of the stock market, screens behind him, his hand is on his head or in the air or something. Uh, wild frizzy white hair behind him. So it's um it's one of those. I, I just, I personally find that so hard to reconcile how you yeah. can, with good conscience, recommend to your clients. I, oh, you should totally do it <laughs> every this. day. You should yeah. buy this because it's a great idea, but I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I just, I find that, I, I actually find it for anyone who's ever hunting around for a fund manager, I, I think the most important, one of the most important things yep. is, um, the really the really good ones that are out there have a policy that if you work for this for us, <laughs> yeah. all your you can't have out investments outside of the fund. Yeah. You you yeah. put your money in the fund yeah. that you work on, right? And that that is that 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 doesn't guarantee anything except <laughs> yeah. that yeah. you know that they're really trying, right? And that is that is so fundamentally important. You yeah. you kind of people I'm sure are listening to that going, well, yeah, isn't isn't that normally the case? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's Actually, right. it's not. That's the exception. Really not. There's plenty of funds out there who, yep. if you can work for them, you don't don't have to invest in them at all. <laughs> exactly. Which to me is just yeah. a like run a mile, run a mile on that alone. Yeah, I think um, I look at you know to, to his a little bit of credit. I, I also personally care more about my members than I care about my own portfolio on on most days because and it's partly because I I. I I can control my own emotions when I'm a member, so I do worry more about our members because I hope they'll follow it through, not because they're less capable, just because, as you said in the last time, we've been doing this for a few, few no, early this podcast. We've been doing this for a while. Um, I know I know I'm going to be okay. Uh, so it's not that I don't, I don't care about losses, I do, but I but I also do care more about my, my, my members. But uh, I think everyone except one of my companies own is a, is a share advisor recommendation for what it's worth for exactly that reason. I just don't yep. feel good about it. And the only, the only time I've only had two three companies I can think of that I've bought since I was running Share Advisor for 11 years that haven't been recommendations. And they're simply companies that I've bought that were not matching the remit of the service. In other words, mm. the service is, it has a very specific mandate and I bought other companies for other reasons. Happy to share the information. It's Fortescue with one, Good Drinks Australia, Gage was the other, and thankfully members have avoided that. RFG, retail food group, funnily enough, <laughs> after it, um, after it, we used to be on the scorecard, actually we Oof. sold it and then it was just too cheap. And I was like, it was either going to go to zero or it was going to be worth more. And because I didn't know which one of those it was, it was more speculative than I usually do for share advisors. So I didn't feel confident yeah. or comfortable recommending it to our members. So I didn't. But otherwise, everything's been uh, yeah, been a recommendation. Hey, mate, one from Zaf who says, Hi, Scott and Ram, brackets page. Enjoy listening to your podcast, Jeds. I learn a lot. So thank you. You're welcome, Zaf. My question relates to investment bonds. What are your thoughts on investment bonds as an easy, no-stress option for my partner? She's not into shares, etc., so finds the whole thing's intimidating to try and purchase shares or property. Do you have any other suggestions for my partner, which doesn't require knowledge of the market, computer share registries, impact on tax, etc.? I'm looking for something that will give her good returns and just requires her to set up a direct debit and it will just grow. Cheers from Zaf. Mm. Do you have any early thoughts or want me to go for uh, Yeah. So, look, um, look, this is ETFs, right? They're, they're just yep. the easy answer. That, yep. that, that's the way to go. Very low cost, very easy. You can. I'm sure there's a bunch of ones that you can set up direct debits and regular yeah. investments just just super easy um bonds now, these are investment it's, bonds in particular mate not bonds as in corporate bonds so these are the kind of you put money away for 10 years there's capital gains that's all that it's a really strange oh uh, yeah insurance yeah. bonds i think he's talking about the, the trouble with them is that they again there's no free lunch right so <laughs> you get a lot more certainty yeah 
And that's that's but but that comes at a cost, and the cost is yeah. lower returns. Yeah. So yeah. you know, again, you've got to, and that doesn't mean you don't do it. There'll be a lot of people that go, well, I just the idea of volatility mm-hmm. just scares the pants off me, so I don't <laughs> want to do. It. I will happily take lower returns <laughs> without that. And if that's yeah. you, then and no no criticism whatsoever. You know thyself is the first rule. And if if that's for you, then hundred percent. But just know that that's the compromise you're taking. Yep, really good point. Zaf, I agree with round one ETFs, but you do say you want to avoid share registries in the market and all that kind of stuff. The other thing I would honestly do is, um, I, I don't I have no interest in this one, but Vanguard, the fund manager, has off-market uh, managed funds that track the index. So these days, an ETF is an exchange-traded fund, which means you can buy the fund on the exchange, right, by definition. So an ETF, you can follow the ASX 300 with a Vanguard ETF. Uh, I don't have any of those. I have a couple of the Vanguard ETFs, but you can just do that on the market with, with chess and everything else. Or you can actually set up a, an account with Vanguard offline, old school. Before there were ETFs, there were simply index funds that were managed funds that weren't on the market at all. Um, you can still do that. You can literally call them up, or jump on the website, fill out some forms. Uh, everything's got a form, so you're not going to avoid that. But you don't. Have, there's no chest, there's no whatever, because it's not on the market. It's actually done directly. You can direct debit into it. Um, they'll probably send you an update. I don't know how frequently, quarterly, monthly. No, what monthly? Quarterly, half yearly, probably yearly, maybe. Um, just here's what, here's what your units are worth now. Um, and that's all you'll need. So you can do the old old school managed fund if you want. If you want to avoid all the market stuff, I don't. I, I would probably, again, ideally, I'd say, hey, give it a go. But if, if your partner's saying, you know, just no, I'm not going to do it. It's like no worries, completely cool. Um, that's mm. one option you could have a think about. Is just literally direct debiting into Vanguard. Let you direct debit into it. I think there's a, it's not. There's an upfront cost, and I think there might be a minimum direct debit, or there might not be. But it's super easy to do. You pick your own timeframes and just it'll do it for you. So uh, it's it's you know. I think if you don't want to do an ETF, that's the next best in my mind. Mm. Yep. Uh, question from Gretchen. Hi, Scott and Andrew. I've been enjoying your podcast the last two and a half years and I've learned a tremendous amount. Thanks. And I think you guys are awesome. Gretchen, that's very kind of you to say. It just so happens I completely... I won't say it. It's terrible. Uh, I have a couple of unrelated questions for the podcast. Excellent. Okay, two separate questions. Here we go. First question. I was listening to the call on Ausbiz this week. And the discussion was on how to read the stock charts and analyze these, therefore using the analysis with regards to timing entry and exit from stocks. Confusing, two exclamation marks. Something about reading candles and black lines, question mark. While I suspect this isn't a strategy you follow with respect to stock recommendations, I did wonder if you or Andrew ever look at stock charts in this way, or do you leave it to the traders? That's the first question from Gretchen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thoughts, mate? Uh, I get myself into trouble when I say stuff. <laughs> I love your answers that start this way because I know they're going to be fun. Let's get let's get you in trouble, Andrew. Talk well, to me about stock charts. People have very firm, it's kind of like talking about religion or politics. You know, people have very <laughs> very firm views on it. So Speaking I, that, that's I've kind of mellowed. I've, I've mellowed a bit as I've aged. Where I kind of my approach is, you do you. You know, whatever you feel works, do it. I'm, you know, I'm not going to let you get away with that, right? Personally. <laughs> I don't buy into it. And why is that? I, well, I said no, it, 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 I've just never seen any, any evidence for it to, to work. Right? Right. Like you, you look at all the, the greatest investors of all time and list them all on a page and, and show me one who's a chartist. They, just, they don't exist, right? <laughs> I'm sure there's one or two out there. There's a law of large numbers. There's going to be some who have, who have done well over time. That's the other problem, just, right? You've got to be careful with that. Because like, I mean, it's a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters for a thousand years, kind of things. Like, well, obviously, someone's going to bang out the first line of you know Macbeth. It just statistically going to happen. But when I when I look at it, and, and it. academics have looked at it, right? Yeah, and yeah. there are look. I'll be fair. There are some some uh, 
factors, as they're called, mm-hmm. that seem better than others. Like momentum seems like it's a thing. Um, you know, things moving up tend to keep moving up. Things moving down tend to keep moving down. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah. Look, it's, I, I just think for, for me, <laughs> I would r- far rather. It's very, it's very much like astrology charting to me. And and you know, some people find it really valuable, and I find it snake oil. Mm. So there, there. I've just gotten myself in trouble, and plenty of you people have. on strawman like it, right? And that's cool. Yeah. That's totally. This is the beautiful thing about strawman. You, you, you do you, and yeah. then the results will be there. And if you can, if you can do well by using it, mm. then great. Mm. More power mm. to you. But I, I've never found it useful, and I prefer to spend my time understanding mm. the business and, mm. and what's a fair price. So I completely agree with you. Um, with I've mellowed as well. I don't do this charting because I, I like you have not seen the evidence. So I'm going to repeat most of what you said, uh, just with a little bit of a little bit of different nuance. Um, we talk about behavioural finance and sentiment a lot, and it's not impossible to me theoretically that that people move in that the groups of people move in relatively predictable-ish kind of ways. And so I could imagine a situation where. It seems to be that through, you know, you, you know, I've talked about the lemmings before, right? About running from mm. one side of the ship to the other and, you know, mm. listing backwards and forwards. At some point, it's not unreasonable. I mean, contrarianism is not miles away from kind of chart reading at some point, right? In the, mm. in the context of everyone seems to hate this thing, maybe there's an opportunity. Everyone seems to love this thing, maybe it's overpriced. Mm. I mean, that, that's, that's not, it's not chart reading, but it's not miles away because the charts, the, the idea is that in theory, the charts will say to somebody reading it, hey, this thing's moving. And it, statistically, when it does this more often than not, like we would say, statistically, when when you know share PEs are low, they're more likely to outperform over the next five years, or whatever the numbers end up being. I don't know if that's true, mm. but you know, work with me. Um, on the flip side, it's possible statistically when everyone hates a thing or loves a thing that you know if if, if mean reversion is a thing, maybe it just happens. So I, I'm not. Mm. I'm actually not. I'm, I used to be much. I, I don't. I've never seen the evidence, right? So I don't want anyone to do it. Actually, I would say don't do it unless you've seen the evidence yourself and you know for a fact that it works or it has worked historically, and there's reason to believe it will keep working. And so mm. for me, that's like nope, doesn't pass that test. Now, is there evidence out there? Possibly. Have I seen it? No. Um, do I think it's possible that in some circumstances it might offer something? Yeah, because maybe there's just something to the way people behave. And if if crowds behave in reasonably predictable ways more often than not, then you know maybe maybe there's something there. Uh, but uh, as Andrew said, I've not seen the evidence. I don't. I don't know that it's doable. And I don't. You mentioned opportunity cost ramp. It applies to time as well as money. And so mm. for me, it's kind of like. I spent a whole lot of time trying to work out whether possibly maybe there was something in it or I could work out with something that I'm reasonably happy and comfortable that I think works and I think I know why it works and I think it's got a reasonable chance of doing well for me. So I don't do it. It just makes no sense to me to, to, to try and read charts because I could spend a whole lot of time and it could be just dead wrong, right? And so it's just it's just harder to do. For me, if I, if I can focus on the things that matter, which are the businesses themselves and the, my, my view of their future prospects, and I have a way of mathematically seeing, working out whether I think that's reasonably attractive price-wise or not. That seems to me a whole lot less, I'll say magical actually, because you're pointing about astrology, than, than having to try and speculate through what sort of statistical analysis I might be able to do, maybe possibly try and understand what people might think about it or either now or in the future. That just seems mm. too hard. But but I, you know, I, I'm not I'm not saying it can't be done. Um, like you, Ram, I was much much more. I was I've become much more mellow as I got older in a whole lot of different areas. But this is this is one of them. I had a second question from Gretchen. My second question is about dividend yields. I don't understand how the percentage is calculated. Is it a percentage of the stock's trading price? I also don't understand how the grossed up percentage is calculated. It's probably really obvious, but I can't work it out. For example, Adairs has a fully frank dividend yield of 8.7%, 
which is 12.5% grossed up. How can I calculate what the dividend will be if I have, say, $1,000 worth of the stock? Thanks and really appreciate your responses from Gretchen. Awesome. Uh, love the question. And so really, you know what, Gretchen, is one of those things that people do take for granted, uh, but it's also by definition then something that we don't spend a lot of time explaining. So we want to do that and I think it's useful. So Ram, do you want to tackle this one or do you want me to tackle it first? Um, oh, look, I'll, I'll go through the maths and I'll let you do the nuance. Maths yeah. is easy. You take last year's dividend over a full year period, over a full financial year, and you divide that by the current share price. So if a company so paid a f- out okay, yeah, 10 yeah. cents in yep. dividends, yep. Like maybe two, you know, five cents at a half year and five cents at the full year, and it's trading at $1, well, it, currently you've got, you've got a 10% dividend yield. So the five cents uh, plus the five cents is 10 cents. 10 cents divided by a dollar is a 10%. That's, that's, 10% what, that's what yield. math tells you. Yep, really easy. And then if you want to, grossed up just means you what you do is you account for the franking credits. So what I want to do is I want an apples with apples comparison. I want to say, well, what's the yield I get um, is if this was just a, a, a straight out income without any franking credits sort of attached. Um, the way you do that is you divide it by one over one minus the uh uh, company tax. So in other words, you divide it by 0.7. <laughs> so that's where you get 8.5% going up to 12%. So you just, whatever whatever the yield is, divide it by 0.7 for a fully franked dividend mm-hmm. and that'll give you the grossed up amount. In other words, I'm getting 12% pre-tax. Nice. I think you've absolutely nailed that one. So a lot, a lot of that- nuance there though, which I'll let, I'll let you no, do. No, there's not, there's not that much. Um, first thing I will say is Andrew just described the trailing dividend yield and you need to be a little bit careful because some yep. people will give you a forward yield or an average yield or something else. Um, so when you're looking at someone else's numbers, it's important to know how they've calculated theirs because the calculations are different. It's dividend divided by price always, uh, but which dividend are they looking at? They should, most people should be uh, using the trailing numbers because that's real information and they should be describing it as a trailing dividend yield to make it really, really clear. Most people don't because they take shortcuts and that's understandable, but it's not very helpful. Um, so Gretchen, it's, it's the trailing yield is the best one to use if you know by the way the future yield is going to be different for whatever reason be careful of that one so in andrew's case let's say a company paid that 10 cents last year and the shares fell to 50 cents you might do the math and go a 20 percent yield man 20 percent. that's I, if i put a dollar and i'm gonna get 20 cents back that's amazing um it's possible or 50 cents in this case sorry it's possible uh what's also possible though is the company has either told the market or the market believes that that dividend is going to go down so one of the hardest parts with dividend yields is you can't know what the future is going to be. A good company will increase the dividend. So it was 10 cents last year. Next year, it's probably 12 cents. And so your yield actually will go up over time. If you buy shares today at a dollar and the company's growing its profits and it's paying out more of those profits in dividends, you might actually have a rising yield. So it's 10% trailing. It might even be 12% forward, but it could be 5% forward or 3% or zero forward. They might actually be cancelling as the banks did during the COVID crash, cancelling the dividends altogether for a short period of time. Yeah. Um, so you can calculate the trailing yield. Just be careful about assuming you're always going to get that money. The, the company doesn't ever make that promise, right? So it's a it's a it's a after the fact calculation or it's an independent calculation. The company never says this is what we will pay. So this is what numbers you should use, or this is what our deal, yield will always be. It's simply here's what we paid out last year. Here's the current price. That's a very simple maths. But you always need to make sure you have a view on what the business is likely to be able to pay. You'll never be 100% right, but likely to be able to pay in, in future. So mm. that's, that's probably the easiest way to do it. In terms of the grossed up stuff, to Andrew's point about franking credits, um, if you earned, let's, uh, I, don't want, I don't want to get too complicated with numbers again. If you're earning, if you're, earning, if you're, if you're a property investor and you get rent, if you've got cash in the bank and you get interest, 
you pay ca- you pay tax on that at your marginal rate. So if I get if I uh, have money in the bank at two percent interest rate, I put hundred dollars in, I'm going to get two dollars a year. And I'm going to pay tax on that two dollars. With shares, um, I'll make I'll make it easier. It'll be more than two percent. Let's say you get a two percent dividend yield, and it's fully franked. You don't pay tax just on that two dollars, but also you don't get any tax you, you don't get tax benefits with 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 money in the bank, right? So you put your hundred dollars in the bank, you get two dollars. In fully franked shares, you put your hundred dollars in shares, you get your two dollars of dividends plus you get a tax credit, which we call a franking credit. And that's actually worth money to you because you actually get that. That actually offsets your tax that you have to pay. So if I'm on a 50% tax rate, just to make my life easy, $2 in saving, $2 interest, I pay tax on half of that or half of it is tax. So I pay a dollar in, in, in tax, right? With fully frank shares, if I, my tax rate's 50%, I get the $2 in dividends, but I also get on top of that some tax credits that offset the tax I'm going to pay. And so to make, as Andrew said, apples for apples, comparing them all saying, if I have to pay a full rate of tax on everything, I got my 2% interest, I got my 2% property yield, rental yield, and I get a, whatever the number is, mate, is it 2.8% would be the grossed up yield mm. on that. And mm. I pay tax then on all those numbers. So it's just a way of, as Andrew says, allowing for the fact that you don't otherwise see the tax credit when you're considering your shares, but to make it a like for like comparison, you gross it up to add in those tax credits you're going to get. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. It, look, get, keep it simple. The higher the yield, the better. The higher the level of franking, <laughs> the better. But as long as as long as you're confident that that, that <laughs> dividend is sustainable and ideally yeah. growing. Yeah. And this is the other trap which we yeah. I think we talked about uh, recently, at least anyway, was mm-hmm. was that sometimes the better income stock has a lower yield. In other words, it might yes. be better to go for the three percent fully frank yep. dividend yep. than yep. the five percent. Why? I mean, that seems odd. And this isn't, it was, well, because one's going to get cut in half. No, this is assuming there's no cut to the dividends. <laughs> yeah. But the one that's at the lower yield, perhaps they manage to grow their dividend by 10% each year. So very quickly it overtakes. Mm-hmm. And when you look back in five, 10 years' time, it's like, oh, this is a far superior stream of income, mm-hmm. even though it started at a lower yield. And that generally is yeah, the case when you look at look backwards in time. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Look, if all this stuff was easy, then uh, we, you know the, the, the better yield, the better returns wouldn't be on offer. So it's kind true, of true. How it how it works. Really good question, though, Gretchen. Thank you for asking it, and I'm sure your fellow listeners have benefited from the, the explanation. As long as we've done a half decent job, but yes, it should be it should be relatively straightforward. Hope hope that helps. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. I hear one from Carl, mate. Uh, hi, Scott and Ram. Firstly, thank you for your weekly pods. I've been a devout listener over a year. We have devout followers. We're only we're only a short distance away, mate, from being cult leaders, it sounds like. <laughs> no? Okay. Well, there's advantages to that, sure. <laughs> my understanding of all things investing is all improved as a result of tuning in. And as a stay-at-home dad of two young ones, your podcast helped me immensely in passing the time in the never-ending chores of dirty dishes, folding laundry, putting toys away, and other fun-filled tasks that <laughs> occupy my day. You're a good man, Carl. Good on you for listening and good on you for being a stay-at-home dad and doing a great job, I'm sure. Uh, now to my question. How do you know when the best time is to take money off the table? In air quotes. That is, selling down a portion of a holding when it's going through a sustained improvement in price. And what is your general view on this approach, even for a company you love and plan on holding for the long term. I consider myself a passive long-term buy and hold investor, good man, and I've never sold a single share. I see my share portfolio as being somewhat of a bank savings account, albeit with better returns. I make regular monthly deposits with no plans for withdrawal until retirement in 20 years or so. I can always find a reason to buy, but I struggle to find the right time and reason to sell. Mm. My concern is, 
This strategy is too conservative and I'm not banking any of my profits. All I have are paper gains. When the balls are running and the markets are up, should this be the time to sell a few shares and take some money off the table? What do you do then with this? Uh, sorry, what you then do with this profit is optional. Reinvest, rebalance, diversify, splurge, etc. The important thing is you have crystallized a paper gain into cold hard cash. I'd appreciate your general in nature, non-personal advice, views on this. Many thanks and full on, Carl. As I always say, thanks for recognizing that we can't give you personal advice, Carl. We never can for anybody listening. We can only give you some thoughts on general. You have to work out how it suits your circumstances. It's a really good question. I'll take this one first, Ram. Yeah, go for it. Um, so I, um, Warren Buffett says our favorite holding period is forever. And I think he's about right. So like you, mate, I... I very, 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 very rarely sell. Uh, I sold most recently my um, Good Drinks Australia shares, old gauge, because I just went, you know what, I'm holding this forever. I, I'm long past thinking the thesis has anything left in it. I'm just holding it because I always held it. I might as well sell it. So I did. Um, before that, I can't remember the last thing I sold. It was a very long time ago. So I'm a bit like you, Carl. I, I prefer not to sell. Um, I've also said that in general, and this is, I'll say again, I say this all the time, and if you're sick of it, good, because it means I'm getting through. Uh, not you personally, Carl, but anyone listening. Um, that if you do the right job of buying and you take a portfolio approach, then letting quality businesses do their thing, in my view, if you've bought well in the first place, is a pretty good starting point, a pretty good default position to be in. So for me, I'm like, you know what? I bought shares in these companies. I hope they're much bigger in 10 years' time. Some won't be. Some will have peaked and gone down. I'm like, oh, man, I should have sold back in 2015 or 18 or 22 or something. Others will be like, oh, my God, thank God I didn't sell in 22 because the shares are now up three, four, five, six, seven, ten 10 times, hopefully, in value. And the cost of selling a business that then goes on to be a 10-bagger, you're never, ever, ever, ever going to make that back unless you really suck with the rest of your portfolio in selling other stuff, trying to be clever and take some profits. So my, my, in terms of psychological biases and avoiding the traps that confront many investors, I just prefer not to sell. Now, I'm also adding money regularly as you are. So I figure if I've got some good ideas, I can invest my new cash in those ideas. Uh, new cash is in the money I'm adding to my portfolio. So there's no need to sell for the sake of it. And I don't need to think about selling down. Now, I have been absolutely towel up on quite a few companies doing exactly that. I've also done really, really well in other companies doing exactly that. Uh, and so, you know, I've given the example of Domino's before. I think I might have mentioned corporate travel. I own both these companies still, although I sold Domino's in the meantime. Uh, corporate travel went from 220 to 28, and then down to five, and then back to 21. I think they're probably a bit lower today, as you know. We're recording this on the the crash day on the 14th of June. Um, you know, I, I am much better having held that for what is close to a 10 bagger, probably not anymore, um, than if I'd sold out cleverly at five or 12 or 17 or 21. Right, so there's, there's, you know, and how I held dominoes would be fine. The ones I've lost money on, I own Kogan. I bought it at six, I think. It went to twenty something, and then now it's ten to three. So you know, would I be better sell twenty? Yeah, absolutely. Overall, combine those two positions together. What am I better off doing? I'm absolutely have much better off, believe it or not, having held both of them through that. So you just, you know, it's just, and again, that that assumes I could have even picked the top, which I wouldn't have. I would have sold on. If I was going to sell some of Kogan, I would have sold some at you know whatever price, and and not made the same sort of gains. So that's the my, my general approach. Honestly, is not to sell. So to your point, like you, I I sort of find a right time to sell. I try not to. I just I love them. Get let them go. The exception, because um, you're asking, is if the thesis is just broken, like um, Good Drinks Australia Gage. It was like you know I, I get what they were trying to do. I thought they had a chance to do it. Maybe they still will. 
Um, there was no evidence I were doing it. It's been a very long time. I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm gonna invest in something else. I've got other ideas. I'm gonna invest in those. So there's that. If I thought a share was stupidly overvalued, I probably would sell. Um, and that would apply mostly in my case for slow growth businesses. Um, if you're if you're Telstra or Woolies, your range of growth outcomes is really small. Um, it, Woolies might, on average, grow at somewhere between I don't know, around three to eight percent a year. Probably yep. is probably the most likely range. Probably at the middle of that range. If the shares were valued as if they're going to grow at 20% a year for the next 15 years, I'd be like, well, okay, that's just stupid. I'll take the money off the table. So, but if but if there's a if I own a growth business, I'm like, you know what, this thing could be really really massive if it if it strikes gold, literally, not literally, but um, you know, if if uh, I'll go back to Kogan, right? If Kogan can find a way to turn its massive revenue and, and customer growth into actual profits at some point, I think it's worth a lot more than the current price. Now, if it doesn't. It's not. So there's that. I don't want to keep talking about Kogan. I own shares and I have to drink every time I say it, as you guys know. Um, but, you know, for, for me, it's like, you know, I, I'm happy to let those things run because I'm, I'm waiting for the thesis to play out or not. And if it doesn't, then I might sell again, as I said, with, with good drinks. But the price is not going to determine that one per se for me. And I'm probably not going to take money off the table for the sake of it because it's one of those, you know, big, big, big range of outcomes. But there, it, it is objectively very, very easy for a slow growth business to be overvalued much harder for objectively for a, a fast growing smaller business to be overvalued because the range of outcomes is so massive so when would I sell if I had a much 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 better idea and I desperately wanted some cash I would sell something if I thought the thesis was broken it's the one that's most likely for me then I would sell uh, and if I thought it was stupidly overvalued and just a slow growth business that just simply could never ever be worth this price like just literally objectively dumb then I'd sell just because the market's giving me free money and a chance to take some money off the table with, with no good reason the other thing by the way is if you sell and, and have to pay tax you sell $10 and then you're reinvesting somewhere between $8.50 and $7 depending on your tax rate um, or $7.50 I suppose um, so you've, you, the stuff you then buy has to not only you, have to, you don't have to be right about it it's going to do even better just to get back to the money you started with and then grow from there so because you're paying tax on the sale if you've made money, particularly you're talking about stairs that have gone up, uh, a much, much, much harder thing. You're kind of handicapping the company you're buying in terms of the, the addition to your portfolio because of the tax you've paid in the meantime. Mm. That's my thought, Ram. I think you're exactly the same. What, what, how would you think about it? Oh, it's, it's such a simple question. That it's just, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, and you've given a very <laughs> yeah. detailed answer and I reckon we could spend the next hour talking about it. it it's hard. We... we Buying a share is really hard, right? Yes. Um, I would argue selling is even harder. Um, mm. Yeah, I agree, actually. You know, because because the, the behavioral problems are mm. a 10x, mm. I think, on the sell side as opposed to the buy side. Um, yeah. Because you've got that endowment impact of, of sort of, well, now I own it. I feel some possession towards it. I just, it muddies the thinking even mm. more. Um, I talked before about opportunity cost. I think that's mm. the proper lens to look through. You know, whether you're Warren Buffett or you're me, you know, you've got you've got a finite amount of capital mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, you can press a few buttons and it can be somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. So it, it always needs to be a question of where is the best possible place for my money today? Yeah. You make an excellent point with tax because there's very real consequences around that. There's mm-hmm. other consequences mm-hmm. around brokerage, of course, as well. Yeah, good point. But all of that kind of stuff aside, I think that mm-hmm. is the smarter way to look at it. Okay. Um, I think you're absolutely right to distinguish between low growth and high growth. Low growth, you just have to be, nothing wrong with low growth companies at all, by the yep. way. You yep. do incredibly well out of low growth companies. Be, but but you've got to be a lot, lot, a lot more accurate with your valuation. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, exactly. W- when you've got a company that's growing its, its, its earnings per share at 20% 
compound and is likely to do so for many, many years, you can, you can, you can be roughly right and still do extremely well there. Um, so it, it's hard. My, my biggest regrets with investing are not the dogs that I've bought, and I've bought plenty of dogs. <laughs> the biggest regrets I have with investing uh, have been either not selling when I should have yeah. um, or selling when I shouldn't have. And, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, I, I would yeah. be a much, yeah, much yeah, wealthier yeah. person yeah, today yeah. if yeah. I hadn't been quote unquote so clever mm, mm, mm. with some of the stocks I bought where I thought, oh, it's a little bit expensive, you know, mm. and sold and then just watched it like 5X from there. <laughs> and think, well, it turns out, <laughs> turns out it could get a lot more expensive or, yeah. or it turns out that my, my appraisal of value was way off mark, you know, choose, mm, pick your narrative. Mm, mm. Um, so, so it's, so it's, 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 it is diabolically hard. It is diabolically point. hard. Yeah. There, and so I can, I, can, I can give the super detailed answer and my yep. thinking on this evolves, but there is, there is a lot to be said for that mm. never sell mm. philosophy. Mm. And, yep. and I forget that I always, I've got to look this up because I continually forget mm. the exact mm. story, but of the person who just bought and never sold. So obviously mm. they bought, like any of us, they bought lots yeah. of bad yeah made lots yes, of bad exactly. investments. Yes. But they go, they fall in value to become either zero or mm-hmm. a very, very, very tiny mm-hmm. percentage. Yep. But, the, but it also means that you never sell the big ones as well. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like the mark, you, you'll end up with these really crazy portfolios where you've got like, you know, 40% of your, your wealth in one company. But, mm-hmm. but it turns out that if you over a lifetime, and it kind of only really works if you're working and you're saving and being able yeah, to continually yeah, invest. Yeah. So that, that, you know, if you're 65, maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. But if you're young and on your investment journey, I mean, I don't do this, right? Because I, I, for <laughs> reasons of ego, I feel as though I'm, <laughs> I'm cleverer or whatever. But yeah. there is something to be said yeah. of ne- uh, whenever, you, whenever you save up a thousand bucks, pop it in the market yeah. and never yeah. sell. Yeah, exactly. Never, ever, ever sell. And you'll look yep. back and go, oh, man, look, all these bad. I could have reinvested. I could have reweighted. I could have done this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you, you make four or five really savvy or even lucky, if you want to, again, choose your narrative mm-hmm. over, over that time frame, and that will cover all kinds of sins. So there's a lot to be said for that, <laughs> that kind of stuff as well. That, that, that's a meandering answer, which kind of doesn't land on anything conclusive, but- no, it's a great, it's a great answer because that, that's, I mean, that's exactly the conversation we're having, right? Is, is when, when does it make sense, and what do you buy, and when you get out, and all that kind of stuff. It's, yeah. it's exactly the thing. I, I'm going to add just quickly. I, so Carl, just, just the, the the crystallized, the cold hard cash, the taking profits thing is really, really seductive. Like, you know, conceptually, really super seductive, right? If I have some money, then I have some money. And if you're going to splurge it, then firstly go for it, but also secondly, you're going to disrupt compounding, as Andrew's mentioned previously. Uh, and that's not necessarily a great idea. If you're going to reinvest it, you're kind of going to reinvest it back into other stuff that are going to have the same problems. So whether you've got, whether you've gone from $10 to $100 worth of Woolies or whether you went $10 to $100 worth of Woolies, sold it and bought $50 worth of Coles and $50 worth of West Farmers just for the fun of it, you still got $100 invested. Both those companies could still go down. None of them know you own them or care in terms of their business operations. I mean, the share registry literally knows you own them, but you know what I mean. Um, so the fact you've made money on the company is kind of only an artifact of your own experience. Not, not Nothing to do with the future potential of that company or other investment ideas so again you know if, you, if you're selling woolies and you're buying coals you've, you've banked the profit in air quotes bank the profit and then you buy coals and coals goes down well it goes down and if woolies goes up after you've sold well you've lost even more um I, it's, it's really 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 stupidly hard to avoid the mental accounting mental accounting is one of those things that is a really bad psychological bias for all of us including me including andrew um but if you can somehow put that aside not let that paper gain burn a hole in your pocket um you know, if, if you'd have, if you had to go to, if you sold everything you own right now, went to cash and then bought it all back again, you'd have no profit at all. So which one would you buy? 
And if the answer is still less to like Woolies every bit as much, then whether you made money or lost money on Woolies is irrelevant. If Woolies had gone from five to 10 or from 20 to 10, if you like it at 10, you like it at 10. It doesn't really matter whether you're making or losing money. And that can be really, really hard to get your head around and really hard to manage your emotions around. But you need to if you can, because it's, it, it, it's that mental account actually has no impact at all on the future returns of anything. Mm. It's just the, the, the way we feel about it. Fair to say, Ray? Yeah, and I guess one more thing is just don't think that something is – It's just, I know we say this all the time, but if something mm-hmm. has fallen or increased in value, it doesn't make it cheaper expensive. Yes. O- yeah. Often, yeah. often a company will double in share price and it'll be cheaper than it was. Yeah, absolutely. Especially on a risk-adjusted basis, yeah. you know. It's sort yeah. of like this, – this, this is the story of the small cap that doesn't stay mm-hmm. a small cap, mm-hmm. you know, it becomes a large cap. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. it yeah. kind of – it's, it's in this very early stage of its life. It's a lot, mm, lot more risky. Mm, mm, mm. They start to get some really solid sales momentum. The mm-hmm. business starts to gain traction, gain market share. And it just, it sort of, it, it hits this inflection point yeah. where even though the shares have gone up a lot because the market started to recognize its potential and the rest of it, it's actually, now it's in competitively a much stronger position mm. and it's able to compound its earnings much. It's made a lot of these big CapEx decisions as well. So now it's sort yeah. of like it doesn't yeah. need to, 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 to invest in, in growth as much as it had to, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of like yeah, pe- people you cheaper expensive is a function of always it, your, your analysis of its future cash flow is not whether the share price mm. is up or down. It's mm. such an important thing to repeat. Um, just as in something could drop it down by 70% and still be 10 times more expensive than it was because now it's now it's like oh maybe this company yeah. doesn't doesn't exist in 5 yeah. years time yeah that's you know that's right that's right so just be, be aware of all of that nice one mate last question from miguel he says i hi mf team great podcast thank you mate this may be a silly or already responded to question but i don't seem to be able to find the answer to it this may also be an irrelevant or highly technical question. I'm notorious for coming up with those. We've been warned, Miguel, thank you. While learning about ETFs and investing in them and how they operate, I got the sudden concern or question. Considering the fact that ETFs follow an index and the fact that their popularity increases, and as it does, they are growing exponentially and taking more and more of the underlying assets of those indices, is it possible that if grown to a certain scale, ETFs may start distorting those indices? and their respective underlying companies' valuations? And if so, what would be the likely risks? Great. My concern is that, for example, if ETFs are 95%, using an extreme example of a company or index, that could result in A, the ETFs taking their valuation of the company from only 5% of the independent investors of the company or index, so not much spread in the knowledge of investors. It also seems very easy to be manipulated and adulterated. I'm basing this on my understanding that ETFs don't select companies based on their own research and assessment of the companies, but by piggybacking on the back of the market's reading of those companies. And if the market gets squeezed out of the company or index, it becomes mostly owned by the ETFs. Wouldn't we be losing the wisdom of a broad-based market, i.e. independent investors? And B, sort of similar with the above, is there the risk that we, the ETF owners, will be holding a bag full of nothing in 30 years' time? Thanks for your time. Best regards, Miguel. What do you say, mate? Oh, it's such a great look. This is this is actually when when ETFs really started to come to prominence. This was a very hot debate in in uh, amongst financial types, and lo and behold, <laughs> is that us? Uh, all the fund managers were very much of that view that they distort markets <laughs> and they lead to all these because uh, you know it's kind of like eating their lunch, and so they were they were. Ah. So natural- fund managers have something to lose. Don't like the idea. There's something to lose. Is that what we tell? Yeah. Them? 
Yeah, I mean, okay. it's just sort of like show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. And here's something that disrupts your business model and, yep, yep, and yep. surprise, surprise, you're all against it. Yes, exactly. Um, that being said, I mean, I, I think there's something to be said, like when there's lots and lots and lots of money flowing into ETFs and the ETF is just allocating it according to what's in there. It, it, is, it is going mm, to have mm, some mm. impact. Yeah. I'm not really that worried about it at all, though. Price is, mm. at the end of the day, is determined at the margin. There's still always going to yeah. be enough people focusing on the stocks themselves to – to um, mm. to change the price, as we've mm. said, if 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 only you and I, if both of you and I had BHP shares and we're the mm. only ones who trade that day, <laughs> and I decide to sell you yeah, my shares right. for one cent each, that's, that's right. what the market price is, right? So yeah, yeah. that never happens, by the way, for those big companies. But but it is an important mm. way of thinking about how prices are determined on the margins. And I don't think, while there, I think I think it is fair to say that there will be some distortions with very very big capital flows on the in on the way in and on the way out. I yeah. think longer term, it's probably not material and that there'll be enough people individually buying shares to sort of keep keep markets more or less honest and fair. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It's, um, yeah, I think that's right. I, I think the concerns are way overblown. Um, it, it, it's funny, mate, because again, it's a bit like share price. We look at the current or most recent experience say, what if that was different? Uh, 100, 100 years ago? No, no, probably not. 20, 30 years ago before hyper trading algorithmic computers and bots and all that kind of stuff there was probably I, I, I literally probably something like one one hundredth would that be reasonable I think it would be of the amount of trades being done on the market mm, and yeah. maybe the market was even slightly less efficient <laughs> but, but there was still a lot of money made by a lot of people who just simply did the simple things really well mm. you don't need a lot of activity you know does it close the spread between the buy and the sell to use the horrible jargon yes probably is that a big deal no if you're, if you're an investor who cares mm. if, I, if I pay half a percent more for my shares because the market is t- air quotes less efficient but I own them for forty years. Just, it just like it just doesn't. Even matter. if you're wrong, right? Even if it goes to zero, yeah. like, do you care if you bought it at one yeah. eight cents or, right. or one dollar and six cents? Like, <laughs> exactly. It makes so, no you know, difference. It's, so it's a, it's a it's a very real question, Miguel. It's a it's, you've thought exactly the right way about thinking it through. Um, so, bottom line, um, I not I couldn't care less. If it gets to ninety five percent, maybe we have a conversation with somebody. But like, even then, I'm still not sure I care. Um, if you know, if ninety five percent of the Here's the other way to think about it, right? Let's say all these companies were 95 percent bigger. Oh, sorry, we're, we're 20 times bigger, and they're all owned by private investors, and all all that trade on the market with the other five percent. Would we say, "Oh my God, that's a real problem"? Because only five percent of the shares are trading. No, because if the others aren't being traded, then the same number of shares will get traded today. If Amazon was 20 times the size and Woolworths was 20 times the size, but 95 percent was held by a, a private investor, the, the price still gets set by the market on the daily trades that happen now. It, it wouldn't actually make any difference whatsoever. Um, so, no, I, I, it's a really good question. I, I have zero, of all the things you mentioned before, Andrew, all things to worry about, brokerage is one, ETF size is even less than that. Like whatever whatever worry you put on chess sponsorship and, and brokerage costs, make it like one one hundredth of the value of that is, is my concern about ETFs and their role in the market. Um, it, look, it, it could be manipulated and adulterated, to your point, if the amount of trades were re- were reduced. But again, I'll leave that to the regulators who do a pretty good job most of the time to do that. So again, does it change my long-term overall returns? No, not unless I play that game. One of the things about this is, I feel like people say, oh, what about what about the bots? What about the algorithmic traders? Blah, blah, blah. So well, are, are you trading against them? Are you trying to beat them in their own game? No. Good. You're playing a different game. Who cares? Yeah. It, it, it literally does. That's your line. Irrelevant. It, it, it literally about like, you know, let's, let's say they're trading a million times a day and they're taking, uh, you know, one uh, tenth of one, or one one hundredth of one percent out of the market by doing that. Okay. Well, should it have happened? Probably not. The regulator probably should stop it. Sure. Does it impact my results as, a, as an investor? No. As a market? Not even really, no. If, unless you're trading. If, if, I, if I buy once a year and I pay 0.001% more for my Wooly shares because a bot's doing its thing, 
I, I genuinely don't care. Like it's of all things to worry about. Yeah, could it should be fixed. Should regulators care? Yeah, if it's distorting the market, they should. They should get it fixed because their job is to have a fair and reasonable market. As an investor, do I need to care, waste time, effort, money on it? No, I really don't. So really, really, really good question. Um, when you say uh, the buying of the ETFs and losing the value of what the market, um, the, the ETF buys are based on market weight of the company, which is kind of by definition the wisdom of the market, but it doesn't make it a value assessment. It's not saying the market's right or wrong. It's just saying Woolies is 2% of the market cap, therefore I'm buying 2% of Woolies. And if that doesn't change, they don't do anything at all. Uh, and if people are buying and selling out of the ETF, it doesn't change at all. The extra buying pressure might slightly, very slightly push prices up if that's your view. But people take money out of something and putting it into something else and they're buying all the time and shares go up all the time. Um, they, are, they are very, very good theoretical questions. Uh, they are highly technical, or at least mostly technical questions. You're right. Uh, so good, 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 uh, good catch for yourself. Um, really interesting thought experiments to go through. I hope ETFs are 10 times the size they are today in 10 years time because if they are that means more people are passive investing more people are getting the, the, the strong long term returns of you know compounding money in the stock market which is the greatest example of capitalism that we have which has generated spectacular gains for long term thoughtful diversified investors for many 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 decades and I assume centuries to come uh, so you know if ETFs are even bigger in 10 years time I'll, I'll be stoked I'll be I'll be you know clapping hands and doing dances because it means many many people are doing doing really really well doesn't mean there's a chance for other investors yeah and ironically um, maybe there's a chance for individual investors to get a little bit more of that efficiency back but I think it's all on the margins it's mm. fractions of a percent in my view mm. fair to say Ray yeah I, look so I, I'm saying this as, as I'm looking at a screen where the market's down 5% in an absolute bloodbath and the the a lot of the talk of these fund flows inflating things you just mm. got to remember that there's another side to that coin and in these kinds of times despite what we might think and say a lot mm. of people are going to panic and sell <laughs> yeah that's right like just I yeah. guarantee you right like yeah. right yeah. now there is a bunch of people freaking out and selling and that'll mm-hmm. that'll continue as as markets continue to be uncertain yeah <laughs> which is forever um <laughs> and 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 a lot of that money will flow out and as those as yep. those etf units are redeemed the, the the etf provider has to go on market and sell shares and so it kind of it kind of works both ways right yeah, true. so i, I feel yeah. as though they're like a horrible term yep. but a cleansing of if that's what you're really worried about the next bear market whether this yeah. is it now probably is or whether it's it's, it's around the corner or in 10 years time it'll mm-hmm. kind of it'll kind of reset that to some degree as well yeah. so yep. yeah the bottom 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 line is it's not it's a great question and it's one that can really it do is. your head in as you think about it but I, <laughs> but I don't think it's I don't think it's one that will will is worth worrying about too much. I completely completely agree. And on that note, we will leave you this Sunday afternoon. Thank you for sending through your questions. As you know, you can do it by emailing us info at fool.com.au. You can follow Andrew exclusively on Twitter at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. I haven't given him a hard time about his Twitter handle for a while. I'll say that next week. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Insta at TMF Scott P. Follow The Fool on Twitter or Insta at The Motley Fool AU. Send us questions there as well if you want to. Uh, on Facebook, I'm facebook.com slash Scott Phillips Money. And The Motley Fool is facebook.com slash The Motley Fool Australia. With that said, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Assuming we're all still here and the market is still going, but we're going to assume that. And hopefully we're coming back to something bigger and brighter. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm on holidays. Ram, can you do your best and just kind of fix things up for me when I get back? So what I'll do is I'll I'll uh, sell some shares and that okay. will be that will be the market's cue to like <laughs> rally. Contrary indicator. All right, yeah. good. Let me so, let me know, mate. I'll place a, a buy my over gift, that same My day. gift to the world. Yeah. <laughs> Full on. Cheers. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.